HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And we are broadcasting live from the Heritage Radio Network. Um, and we have a very cool show today. I have two guests who have been on before, two guests that I admire greatly of, for varying reasons. Uh, the first up is uh, Dr. John Glisson, who's a relative newcomer to the show. Uh, Dr. Glisson, in case you don't remember him from a few weeks ago, is currently the Vice President of Research at the U.S. Poultry and Egg Association in Tucker, Georgia. He recently retired as head of the population, uh, Department of Population Health at the University of Georgia, where he was head of Department of Avian Medicine and was also Associate Dean of Public Service and Outreach at University of Georgia's College of Veterinary Medicine. So he knows his chickens. Okay, up next is uh, Bob Martin. Bob is the Director of Food System Policy at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health's Center for a Livable Future, a mouthful if ever there was one, and a guest lecturer at the school. Formerly, he was a senior officer at the Pew Environmental Group and was the Executive Director of the Pew Commission on Industrial Farm Animal Production, a two-year study funded by the Pew Charitable Trust by a grant to Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Um, and there was uh, a recently, not so recently, but about a year ago, a follow-up to that study after a five-year period. And uh, Bob was on the show at that time um, to talk about those follow-up results. Um, so anyway, he has more than 30 years of experience in public policy and politics at both the federal and state levels. Again, another guru, people. So listen up. Um, we are going to talk today about um, when Dr. Glisson was on a few weeks ago, which was just before Christmas, uh, we were talking about um, the Urban School Food Alliance's decision to uh, stop buying chicken that had been treated with antibiotics in their public school systems. And we're talking about literally millions of school children and many, many millions of pounds of poultry. So needless to say, for the uh, National Chicken Council and the poultry business in general, this was something of a bolt uh, from the blue. Certainly not welcome news for anyone who had not yet at least uh, taken something of a plunge into antibiotic-free um, protocols. 
<clears throat> at the time, Dr. Glisson uh, mentioned to me a uh, Harvard study, which I had not yet read. And um, Jack, why don't you play this uh, clip from the show, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Thanks so much. Hang While in there. While the concern is not unwarranted, the extent of the problem may be exaggerated. There is no evidence that agriculture is largely to blame for the increase in resistant strains, and we should not be distracted from finding adequate ways to ensure appropriate antibiotic use in all settings, the most important of which being clinical medicine. So, um, guys, let's let's uh, start with this. Um, when we talk about that Harvard study, first of all, um, you know, Dr. Glisson, I, I have to say that your comments there, although I know you were reading from a press release, um, you know, seem to echo this kind of overall pervasive attitude in the animal agriculture sector that, in fact, it's really not an agriculture problem that we have multidrug resistant pathogens in our food system. It's really a clinical medicine problem. And um, I, I, I wanted to, to um, sort of get into uh, what of the things in the in that study that really jumped out at me, uh, one of which being that um, the study, which oh, and and let me preface all of this by saying, and, and welcome to the show, by the way, guys. Sorry, excuse hey, me. Good to be here. I'm like so excited about this that I, I can't even let you guys talk. I'm too busy talking about how great I am. Anyway, um, Bob, you're there, right? Yes, I am. Okay. Thanks for having me, Kathy. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, and it's Katie. Thank you. Um, oh, and sorry, so, Katie. Um, and uh, so anyway, there were um, a number of paragraphs that jumped out at me. But one of the things that really shocked me uh, to my marrow, uh, given that this study came from the Harvard School of Public Health, was that when I invited the lead author of the study onto the program, uh, which he was unable to do due to the fact that he was on a sabbatical, uh, he told me in an email that um, anti- uh, antibiotic-resistant pathogens are not, don't even make it to the top 100 of his list of public health concerns, which given the, you know, sounding of alarm bells that has been going on for about the last, I don't know, seven or eight years at least, um, was something of a shocker to me. But there were a few things in the study that jumped out. One was that the, um, the, uh, the study does say that the absence of evidence that there are uh, that high level resistance is going on um, is hard to demonstrate, and the abs but the absence of evidence does not mean that there is no effect. So um, I wanted to discuss that because I, I did get the impression from uh, you, Doctor Glisson, that you felt that that sort of gave a, a free pass to the industry, to the livestock industry, to just continue with um, business as usual. Did you want to comment on that? Yeah, and that, uh, I, didn't mean to give you, I didn't mean to give you that impression. Thanks for letting me talk, Katie. <laughs> Just nice, for a minute, though. <laughs> nice to hear your voice again. Nice. Hey, um, you know, the reason that I thought this was an important study was is not so much from what it said or didn't say. It was just the, uh, the, the way that they dispassionately looked at, at the facts and what is known and, and drew their conclusions based on that. And it was not very speculative. And so it really didn't point fingers. It mostly concluded that we don't know enough to make conclusions. And uh, that's why I thought it was, it was refreshing. And uh, mm-hmm. they worked very hard not to point fingers at, at uh, clinical medicine or at agriculture and said we simply don't know at this point. But, Bob, I'm, I'm going to ask you to jump in here because um, from all of the material that I've read uh, in the last five or six years, and I, I admit to being a bit of a newcomer here, um, you know, that that is uh, – you know, clinical medicine certainly bears its burden of responsibility, but wouldn't you say that other organizations have uh, made those alarms much more strong, uh, strong sounding? I mean, wh- why don't you give us your side of the of the picture? 
Well, thanks again for uh, having me on, Katie. Well, I'm, I'm a bit shocked at the Harvard study, frankly, because the, one of the first studies that uh, talked about direct transmission of resistant E. coli from uh, poultry to humans was in 1989, and there have been about 30 other studies uh, just based on the ag setting. And the problem is really the way antibiotics are used in uh, farm animal production. It's and they're not used the same way in clinical medicine. Um, in clinical medicine, um, an infection is uh, treated with a strong enough dose to kill the bacteria. And in sometimes, as a, in preparation for surgery, for example, it's used as a, a preventive uh, medicine, um, but it's also at therapeutic levels, stronger levels, for a shorter period of time, a couple of weeks. The difference is in food animal production that low levels of antibiotics are used uh, daily to suppress bacteria. It kills some, but it actually strengthens others, and that's how the resistance, uh, bac resistant bacteria emerge. And so I've, I've looked at about 29 different studies today just on poultry, and I know the, the Pew Charitable Trust has done a bibliography of a couple of hundred studies that really show uh, a link between this low-level use, uh, the sub-therapeutic or non-therapeutic use, and resistant infections uh, emerging in the human population uh, coming either from uh, transmission directly from animals uh, or uh, meat. There's a University of Hong Kong study that has done a genome sequence of uh, uh, resistant urinary tract infections in women being linked to a bacteria on poultry, and it's, it's a pretty direct smoking gun. There's another study going on in the, in the United States that's going to be completed soon that will show the same thing. So I'm a bit shocked that they say there's, um, there's not enough evidence. Um, it's just because the way we use them in agriculture is the problem. We were warned about this uh, as early as 1945 by uh, Sir Alexander Fleming when he accepted the Nobel Prize for developing, synthesizing penicillin. He said, don't use it in low levels on a daily basis because he saw resistance emerge in his lab that way. So um, the other thing that's a bit surprising, it's from a public health school, um, is there something called the precautionary principle that public health people operate on? Mm -hmm. And that is until you prove something is safe, the prudent uh, course is to uh, not act in a certain way, not have certain behaviors. So it's a bit surprising from that aspect, too. Dr. Glisson, how do you respond to that, uh, that, that fact that there are all these uh, various studies that actually do seem to provide a direct link between antibiotic-resistant pathogens and transmission into human population? Because um, I understand that that's, that's the sticking point for the industry. They're like, well, yes, it does this, but it's not moving beyond the farm animal. It's, it's not entering the human population. But clearly, especially with this UTI, um, that very uh, common uh, Campylobacter, and you know drug-resistant Campylobacter UTI thing that that seems like a really clear transmission or or even MRSA in uh, you know in hog farmers or swine production you know a lot of those people are coming up with MRSA swabs in their nose so how how do you balance that out because it's it does seem like the Harvard study was incredibly wishy-washy to me and at the same time you guys seem to be using it as like well see Harvard said it's okay am I am I being unfair there. I think a little. Uh, <laughs> you know, 
You would agree to. Yeah. Hey, well, you know, I, but, it's you a rhetorical know, the FDA, question. The FDA, uh, <laughs> FDA uh, has has already uh, moved on beyond that and and has agreed with with the uh, other speakers' comments. So, what has happened is those seven classes of antibiotics that are used in uh, human medicine are not going to be allowed for subtherapeutic uh, use anymore. So. That is, as you know, Katie, we're yeah. in the voluntary phase of that, and it right. will become mandatory by the end of 2016. Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but I want to go back to what you just said um, about withdrawing those seven antibiotics from agricultural use. And um, I'm not going to bore people with what those are, but but what I've understood, and, and you guys are so much better schooled in this than I am, but what I have understood about one of the dangers inherent in using um antibiotics in a subtherapeutic uh, protocol is that that the bacteria are promiscuous. I mean, they, they love to use that word promiscuous. I guess that makes it just kind of a sexier idea, but um, and that they, they trade genes quite readily. So even if you're not exposing, and, and this is just hypothetical, or what I've understood on my part, but even if they're not exposed to, say, um, Cipro or, you know, uh, one of the Keflex uh, cephalosporin type drugs, uh, isn't it possible that they will develop uh, an, an, a multi-drug resistance just through sort of natural resistance building complexes? I know I didn't explain that very well, but do you guys understand what I'm saying? Like it doesn't necessarily have to be that drug that confers resistance eventually because of genetic mutation. That might be clear. Well, yeah, Katie, I've, uh, I'm aware of studies that show that when um, a bacteria is uh, uh, exposed to an antibiotic in a class at a subtherapeutic or non-therapeutic level, that it develops resistance to uh, uh, the, all the antibiotics in that class. And, and what's more is it can be passed. The, 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 they are promiscuous. They, they multiply rapidly and... Uh, there is evidence that shows transmission of that resistance to bacteria uh, that have never been uh, exposed to uh, to antibiotics. Now, I I would say that there need there does need to be more investigation into that, more studies into that aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the frightening thing about that is, um, uh, you know, that I think you know another genome um, sequencing study showed that. That uh, MRSA, the methicillin staph aureus, uh, that's the superbug, started out as an antibiotic susceptible uh, uh, bacteria and was introduced into swine population because swine and people um, have similar physiologies. And because of low level use of penicillin and tetracycline in swine operations, uh, MRSA emerged. And actually, a lot of the scientists are now saying that, you know, there are there are no two types of MRSA uh, community or hospital. That's actually one bacteria. But but that what's happening in the environment at large with resistant bacteria and what's being spread to non-resistant bacteria who that haven't come into contact with antibiotic probably could use uh, more study. Hmm. Interesting. And, and, and the MRSA thing, I mean, I, I, know, the, I know that the, the agricultural industry will say that it was actually people who introduced MRSA to uh, the swine population rather than the other way around. Am I, I think that's accurate, right? 
that people... Well, that's, that's what the industry says, but the, mm-hmm. they've done sequencing. The same people that, um, that are doing the study in the United States about uh, tracing the, the genome sequence um, on urinary tract infections in women have done the, the other, and, it, and it's pretty clear now that it was introduced in the swine population as an antibiotic-susceptible bacteria and became resistant in the swine population and made its way out into the larger community, especially hospitals, yeah. by humans. Right. I see. I always think it is something that you get in the hospital, not something that you necessarily get uh, on the farm. Um, so you're saying the opposite there, that it was actually yeah, well, that's, developed that's the there, scientific. came to the hospitals, and then, and then went back out into the community and then onto farms. Um, I'm going to move on because there was another paragraph um, that struck me uh, in that, white pa- in that uh, Harvard study. Um, and, th- and this was, I thought, uh, very telling. And um, Dr. Glisson, no disrespect in- intended here, but it's something I would like to discuss with you um, especially. Uh, and the paragraph goes, on the other hand, the strong economic interests favoring continued use of antibiotics in agriculture have resulted in major funding for studies that have found modest human health burdens from agricultural animal use, although the potential conflicts of interest are not always reported in the peer-reviewed publications reporting these analysis. And indeed, uh, your very own um, colleague, Tom Super, sent me uh, several studies by Cox and Popkin and another study from the National Institute of Animal Agriculture. Um, and uh, I read, I had read all of those studies already, and then I, I looked, um, I sort of traced back the Cox and Popkin um, link and realized that they that study had been um, um, actually, both of their studies have been funded by the um, animal agriculture industry. And so I wanted to talk to both of you a little bit about how science, um, you know, is gets, I, don't, I hate to use the word impact as a verb, but I'm going to, I'm sorry, at a loss at another, for another word. But, but the way that science is, is, to my mind, being somewhat perverted or, or twisted to fit the needs of the various uh, financial entities that are funding studies. And I'm sure, Dr. Glisson, you've seen plenty of that in your work, especially within a university setting. And I wondered if you'd like to address that because, I mean, I'm not pointing the fingers, but I'm just at you specifically. I'm just saying, like, how do you as a former academic feel about having, you know, using studies that have been paid for by somebody in whose interests it is to prove the point the way they want to see it? Well, you know, as a, as a university researcher, you're always looking for funds to work Yeah, that, That's what you spend your whole life doing. And I understand so there, that. there are many different sources. And, you know, I think it really, it questions the researcher's integrity and character maybe to say that they're going to take uh, funding from a source and come up with an answer to please that source. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, that sort of thing, maybe it happens. I've never seen it happen, but, um, you know, sorry. I'd like to point out the sentence before the one you just read in the uh-huh. paper. The, the sentence before the one you just read says, pointing to agricultural sources for clinical problems of antimicrobial resistance serves the interest of vendors and prescribers of antibiotics for clinical medicine. I'm implying that they bear a correspondingly lesser share of the blame. Mm. So again, these these authors were very balanced. They they if they're going to point a finger, they're going to point a finger in both directions. So yeah. there's questions on both sides. Well, I don't think that uh, I, I I think that that the that it's a given i think at this point within the medical community that antibiotics have been grossly oversubscribed and i and or prescribed and i think that there is um you know a lot of uh, training retraining efforts going on and a lot of uh, sort of um 
efforts within the clinical medicine population, you know, of doctors to uh, roll back some of that overuse. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to point the finger exclusively at animal agriculture, even though I know it looks that way right now. I recognize, (laughs) I mean, even my own pediatrician, when my daughter's, I mean, just to talk about me for a minute, but when my little girl was very young, she had chronic ear infections. And for years and years, she was treated with Augmentin or some variation thereof. And by the time she was 10, they sort of subsided. But also at that time, her pediatrician with tremendous anger in his voice told me that he and his colleagues had been sold a bill of goods by pharmaceutical companies and that he deeply regretted having prescribed all those medications to you know his population of children. And that, in fact, I think he was even going uh, you know, to testify in front of Congress about it. I mean, he had gotten very hot about about this, and I and I realized that you know pharmaceutical companies bear a lot of the burden in terms of encouraging doctors to use these wonder drugs uh, without really <clears throat> explaining the ramifications of that overuse. Uh, so, it, I mean, in reality, I frankly blame the pharmaceutical industry more than anyone um, for this profligate use of antibiotics, both in the clinical setting and in the food setting. Um, <clears throat> and then the last paragraph that struck me about their um, Oh, Bob, I didn't give you a chance to respond. What do you think about how science is funded? I think it should be public. I think it should be a public fund that we pay taxes for myself. I'll just put it right out there. I don't think it should be privately funded. What do you think? Yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, I don't think anybody can begrudge, you know, the uh, industry from from funding research um, that maybe helps promote its business model. I don't I don't really begrudge it. But I think the real problem has been the the dramatic cuts in publicly funded research, not only in this area, but really yeah, in, in, all in a lot of areas. Yeah. And because, you know, the, the theory is that, that public dollars um, uh, don't have any strings attached. Um, we heard during the Pew Commission um, study, we heard from a lot of uh, researchers at, uh, at land-grant schools expressing this very concern that because, as, as the doctor just said, because of uh, cuts in, in public research, uh, there's a scramble. There's always a scramble for funding at, at um, both private and, uh, and public uh, universities, and the industry has filled that void. And so I don't begrudge anybody doing research that, uh, that they want to, to uh, promote their business model, but there ought to be some unbiased uh, publicly funded research, and, and that has really been devastated over the last 20 years, um, uh, you know, primarily by, by Congress. Um, oh. it's, inter- it's interesting to note that President Obama, some of his um, uh, budget priorities uh, were leaked out yesterday. He's releasing his budget uh, today in its entirety, and there was, there was uh, this, you know, he's got this war on antibiotic resistance, and, and he does call for taxpayer-funded research uh, to develop new antibiotics, and uh, the director of our center here has sent him a letter saying that, uh, 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 well, sent a letter to Secretary Vilsack because USDA is going to get $77 million. Right. Uh, the whole budget is 1.2, I thought. Yeah. And, and we've said, okay, well, if, if taxpayer money is going to fund it, then they need to be more tightly controlled instead of companies... Uh, encouraging their inappropriate use across the boards, as they have done, um, and uh, and also that alternative production methods should be looked at to mitigate the need for antibiotics. So, I I agree that the cuts in funding have been a very significant problem. 
Right. Um, I'm going to. Danny, can yes, I make sir. one quick comment? You betcha. Absolutely. Your uh, the National Academy of Sciences just uh, finished uh, a study uh, just a few weeks ago. They, put, they published it on their website where they looked at uh, the future needs for funding for um, research in the animal sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did a fantastic job on it. And their re- report goes through topic by topic the things that they think. Uh, federal and state funding needs to go toward. And one of those is uh, antibiotic use and um, antibiotic resistance in food agriculture. So uh, the National Academy of Sciences has really uh, come on board trying to encourage, you know, that's a report that goes to Congress, trying to encourage this uh, return of the funding that we used to have. So... um, you know, it is it, at the university level right now, uh, scrambling for money is really, really tough to try to keep your lab going and keep your research program Oh, going. I can imagine. So, I mean, you know, yeah. and why wouldn't you, you know, court somebody who's got deep pockets? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you'd be crazy not to. Listen, uh, we should take a short break, but um, listeners, please stay with us. We're with uh, Bob Martin from the Center for a Livable Future and Dr. John Glisson, who uh, is an avian vet with the National Chicken Council. So stay with us and we'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. We are back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. And boy, are we having some insights today. Um, I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And my guests today are Bob Martin from the Center for a Livable Future, uh, part of the Johns Hopkins uh, Bloomberg School of Health, and uh, Dr. John Glisson, um, an avian vet with um, the National Chicken Council. And we're talking about a paper that was published recently by Harvard. But we're going to move on now because um, just this past week, um, and uh, Dr. Glisson, did you get a chance to see at least the article in Meeting Place or Drovers about the feedlots. Okay, good. Um, So just this past week, um, my favorite publications, meetingplace.com and Drover's Cattle Network, both reported on a new study from Texas Tech University, um, which was the first study that documented uh, the serial transmission of antibiotic resistance from an open air farm setting. And although uh, scientists couldn't evaluate the if the amounts of the materials were dangerous to human health, the results did help to explain a previously uncharacterized pathway by which antibiotic-resistant bacteria could travel long distances. And obviously, this is going to be a big deal for everyone in the livestock industry, because even if you're in a closed setting like a poultry barn or a pig barn, uh, you have these giant fans blowing uh, the air out so that the animals don't die from the ammonia exposure. So um, I just wanted to sort of get a take uh, from both of you on on what you think the implications of this study are going to be. Uh, How much is the EPA going to... um, follow up on this and and what kind of impact do you think it will have on the industry if any (laughs) who's first well i I do think it's an interesting development and it actually kind of surprised me when i when i read it because i I always take notice when uh something like that appears in one of the industry publications it's like when the editor of meeting place 
uh, about a year ago said, you know, industry, quit pushing all these ag-gag laws. Let's be open and transparent, and that will yeah. help us. So I did really take an interest in it. I think a couple of things. I mean, there are studies that have shown that, um, uh, you know, bacteria has been found airborne, resistant bacteria up to three miles uh, from industrial swine operations, as you said, vented through the um, um, you know the the massive um, fans at at the end of each building, and um, and recently um, a group of uh, uh, non governmental organizations have sued the EPA, saying um, you know regulating the um, liquid waste or the or the dry waste applied is not enough. You really need to look at the uh, uh, air quality uh, coming out of these operations. So I, I think it was. Um, I, th- I thought it was a fairly dramatic statement of yeah, so the, nice. the Texas A&M guy recognizing that, you know, there is transmission. And uh, I, don't know, um, I don't know if it will lead to changes in the industry. I do think that we've seen a lot of consumer interest in this issue has led companies like Purdue, uh, for example, to announce that, that uh, they have eliminated the use of uh, antibiotics important in human medicine in their production, and they have uh, 95% of their their production is uh, raised without non-therapeutic antibiotics, and that that big announcement was made in the uh, in meeting place not too long ago too. Yes, it was. Yep, yep. Um, and Dr. Glisson, I'm assuming that you thought that was a good development that they were cutting down on antibiotic use in poultry. I'm sure you've been working yourself very hard on trying to solve this equation, right? I mean, oh, clearly yeah. it's a big deal for anyone in the in- industry because you've got to totally change your <clears throat> your management practices. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there's, there's a number of companies that have for several years now uh, stopped using antibiotics. And, you know, it's a trend. And, then and, and uh, you know, this is snowball coming down the hill and it's getting mm. bigger and bigger. I think you're going to see, you know, Purdue made that public announcement, but a lot of other companies have done it and just haven't announced it. And I think you're going to see more and more of that. And do you think it will go not just from the poultry industry, but to all of the other industries? Because you're not hearing from the, say, the National Pork Producers Council that they're phasing out um, the use of any drugs, as far as I can tell. (laughs) It's like, let's give them the beta agonists, let's give them the antibiotics. Hey, what the hell? It's it's a free for Well, you know, for the Katie, the way, it, the way it's working, it's very different. It's very different than the way it's worked in the EU, where you know changes were made through primarily through government regulation in the EU. Yes. And this country, we tend to be a bit more capitalistic, and and it's changing in response to a changing market. You yeah. know, the consumer wants a product, and the poultry industry will provide it. And mm-hmm. to me, that's a that's a healthy way to go. Mm-hmm. And. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we mentioned before, but a big uh, game changer in, in uh, the whole United States uh, equation, I think, was when Chick-fil-A said they would be antibiotic-free within five years. Mm-hmm. Now, that has a much bigger impact than than most things because yes. they're creating a market. Right. You know, they're creating a market. for. They're now the largest seller, retail seller of chicken in the United States is mm-hmm. Chick-fil-A. They surpassed Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so, you know, when a, when a, a huge operation like that says this is what we're going to do, that has just created the market. 
and and the industry responds by filling that market. And I think we're going to see more and more and more of that. That's the way I see it changing. Well, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, I think just the, the recent kerfuffle over carnitas uh, with Nyman Ranch being unable to obtain pork of a quality that they felt was acceptable um, showed that the demand for um, for antibiotic-free um you know, proteins is 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 growing exponentially. I mean, uh, I think uh, Chris Arnold, my uh, my guest at the time, told me that their uh, Chipotle is is expanding by two hundred to two hundred fifty stores a year. Uh, that's a huge amount of expansion and a, a con- concurrently a huge amount of food. Um, and I, you know, and I, what what is interesting to me is is how slow uh, industry has actually been to respond. I mean, in the two talks that I was allowed to give to, you know, various animal agriculture uh, entities over the last few years, um, and I noticed that they haven't been inviting me lately, um, Dr. Glisson, perhaps you could put a word in their ear. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have certainly, I've certainly testified that you know how to talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, they, um, you know, I was saying to them, you know, three years ago, like, you guys are not seeing uh, the forest for the trees here. Like, I mean, you have got to change your practices just because not because it's, you know, annoying or, you know, or people are, are responding to incorrect information. It's because this is what the consumer wants. And it really doesn't freaking matter whether they're right or wrong. So, um, you know, from the point of view of a business. Anyway, I want to just like we don't have too, too much time. But um, let's go back to that. Uh, Doc, you mentioned the guidances, uh, which I think were 210 and 213. Were those the numbers? People can look those up, by the way, in the congressional record. 209 and 213. Yeah, 209. Thank you. Um, in the, uh, sorry, in the FDA uh, records, you can look up those guidances. They're really easy to read. They're very short. Um, anyway, they were enacted last year after a three-year wait period. I don't know why. Um, and uh, as you pointed out in your last visit to my program, uh, they will be phased out as growth promotant slash, and you can correct me here, slash disease prevention by 2016. But um, given the difficulty of how hard it is to get uh, antibiotic use monitored now, meaning like we don't actually even really know uh, exactly how much antibiotics, even though everybody bandies around figures from 60 to 80%. And then if you're uh, Dick Raymond, you can parse it down to about 17. <laughs> One of my favorite things about him. Um, you know, how are they going to measure that after these guidances go into effect? Like, I know they're going to need prescriptions, but, um, you know, these are voluntary guidelines. Who is going to be making sure that companies comply by 2016. How is that going to happen? How do you see that rolling out? I well, it's both the, of it's you the to same comment. as it is. It'll be the same as it is now. It's the FDA's responsibility, and you know, yeah. the FDA has has authority to go in any feed mill at any time and and get the data. It's all in the feed mill, and I'm not real sure why they don't report that. They they do uh, inspections of all feed mills in in the United States that mix. FDA-approved products in feed, uh, they inspect them on a routine basis, and they look at all the records and all the antibiotic uses there. Yeah. Why they don't Why they don't put that together and report it? I don't know. I mean, you need to ask the FDA. But uh, they've yeah, been I, doing I They've been doing that for fifty years. Yeah. And why? I don't know. I don't know why. I, you know, I've asked that question. Why don't they report that data? I, I don't know why. They're the They're the ones that have it. 
Well, you oh. actually were quoted in a uh, an article in 2011, which I dug up, um, and um, that you basically said the same thing then. It's like, yeah, you can you can get this information if you ask for it. But um, in other parts of that same New York Times article, um, you know, other people reported that it was extremely difficult to extract that information. And indeed, uh, someone from the National Porks Producers Council told that reporter that uh, they had no obligation to report anything about their feed, and they had no intention of doing so. So I, I suppose you would need a freedom no, of information act they don't report it the fda goes in and inspects the feed mill yeah but they apparently the pork producers don't want to cop to even what they're using so they're buying x number of pounds of feed but we don't know exactly how many numbers of pounds of that feed is actually going into pork production right i mean surely there is some wiggle room there bob what do you think no, about those that? records are actually in the feed mill and the okay. fda has has access to it mm-hmm. i mean it's the way it is yeah. Now, well, no, I, I, I hear you. I believe that, you. I do not know. I do not. I, know I think there's I a couple problems that. with with that type of system. Number one, uh, FDA is is critically underfunded and under resourced, and so they don't always. Uh, I mean, I think they they do some random um, uh, inspections, but I don't think there's any concerted. Um, every feed mill is inspected, you know, every 12 months or anything like that. They just don't have the resources. In fact, um, they rely more and more, FDA relies more and more on, on uh, drug user fees to fund positions. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is the reason why it's not, um, the data is not collated and released is the industry doesn't want it to be. Um, we have been pushing um, for several years, uh, the public health community uh, has been pushing for several years to aggregate that data and release it release antibiotic use by species, collected by species, and release it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the industry's always opposed that. So um, he's right. The FDA does have the authority to inspect feed mills. They're the ones that oversee um, the regulation of what goes into animal feed. Right. But they, they really don't have the resources to do a good job. And, and it's, it's always those kind of behind the scenes, the, the uh, species promotion group lobbyists and and some of the large companies and including the drug companies you know push uh, to cut that type of funding so FDA can't do its job so it's uh, I think the the authority is there but the funding certainly is not and again I mean um, you know until the the reauthorization of the animal drug user fee act in 2008 um, FDA didn't even collect uh, antibiotic sales data and mm. Uh, as part of the reauthorization of that, um, uh, as a compromise, instead of uh, banning the use of certain antibiotics um, in animal feed, uh, the industry said, well, let's collect the data. And all along, um, the industry had been saying oh, only about 20% of the antibiotics sold in the country are sold for animal use. And after three years of collecting data, the FDA released statistics that showed as well, it's actually 80% of the antibiotics sold in the country. So they don't really, uh, I'm not saying the good doctors this way, but the industry really doesn't want that kind of data aggregated and released. And and we get pushback all the time. We've had to sue uh, uh, FDA. Uh, well, no, we didn't sue, mm-hmm. but we were expert witnesses for groups that brought suit against FDA to release it. And we filed lots of Freedom of Information Act requests to get it. It's, and it's really information that ought to be released without having to go to court. Yeah. I think you would agree with that, Doc Glisson, no? What, the antibiotic use? Well, yeah, that it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to file a Freedom of Information Act 
and go to court in order to get this, you know, pretty vital data um, <clears throat> that we all will eventually uh, rely upon. But I, I want to just like I, I, I still we still haven't answered the question of how in 2016, uh, when antibiotic use in, in uh, subtherapeutic quantities is, is phased out and, and essentially banned, um, how that is going to be. Uh, how that industry compliance is going to be affected. How, you know, like, as Bob just pointed out, FDA is grossly underfunded, grossly undersubscribed, um, doesn't have anything like the manpower necessary. I mean, I don't even see how vets are going to manage it, really, um, in terms of writing all those scripts. But anyway, I want to... We only have, yeah, go ahead. The way it's working, I, I can only speak from the poultry industry, the way it's working there is, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies are going to withdraw or else have taken away, if they don't withdraw it, their claims for subtherapeutic use on those products. Right. And so the, the, the feed mills, the, the poultry company feed mills, will no longer mix feed at those subtherapeutic dosages. They won't do it. Uh, they'll comply with the law. That's the one thing the poultry industry does is it complies with the law. <laughs> That's very and, encouraging to hear. Us. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> and uh, in the oversight then... Of that, you know, if you're going to, you know, who would check to see if they're complying with the law? Again, it's the FDA. Yeah. And, you know, and as as was said, if they don't have the funding and manpower to do that, then that's a problem. You know, yeah. that's the problem. You, you don't really have the oversight. There's no other agency to oversee that. That's right. Um, and, uh, yeah. well, but, you know, I from my like point to... of view, having worked in the poultry industry all these years, uh, I know that the poultry industry is going to comply. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it obeys the law. Whatever the law is, they obey it. They may they may not like the law, or they may not want you to change the law. But once the law is in place, they obey it. I'm glad to hear that. And Bob, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say that you know, in the guidance 213, actually in the judicious use, it still does allow for non therapeutic use for disease prevention. I think that's one of the main concerns. Yes. That there. Their description of disease prevention is the same dosage and, and protocol or length of application that's used for um, growth promotion. Uh, growth promotion, and yeah. and there's ongoing. We're part of a group doing an analysis uh, on on you know the drugs that have um, been approved for both growth promotion and disease prevention, and and there's a pretty big overlap. So I I'm not sure that that the, well, I'm pretty sure that Guidance 213 uh, is not going to be as effective as people hope. Right. Doc, listen, do you want to respond to that? I mean, it sounds like business as usual to me, which is what everybody's been worried about. What do you think? Oh, do no, you think it's the not poultry... business as usual, but I think really? that's what's, what's happening with 213 is a step, and I think uh, it'll be followed by another step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I think will happen. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, FDA tends to do things in stepwise fashion. Yeah, and so once two thirteen is implemented, I expect we're going to see the next step, hmm. which will address some of the other concerns. Yeah, Bob, you feel that optimistic? <laughs> uh, well, I, I I would if they had the resources to to ad- adequately track things and compliance and and reductions, but I just don't think they've got the um, I don't think they've got the resources to do that. So I'm not sure there's. I hope they're working on a program in FDA to uh, figure out how they're going to gather data to see if there is compliance and uh, and some testing and that sort of thing. But I've not seen anything yet, so um, it feels a little bit to me uh, like whistling past the graveyard. 
Wow. I haven't heard that expression before. That's interesting. Okay. So uh, we got to wrap it up in a couple of minutes. Um, Here's a question for both of you. Who is winning the ABX battle Um, with all of livestock agriculture eventually? Will all of animal livestock ag uh, eventually change over to a, um, you know, as needed basis of antibiotic treatment? Or are we actually building two separate food systems? Well, I think the winner, if we're picking winners and losers, the winner's are, are the uh, consumers. Uh, whatever the consumer demands, that they're going to get. And, uh, and so I think what the consumer in, in this country wants is a lot of choices, and they're going to get a lot of choices. And uh, I think that's what we see happening. Unfortunately, as has been said, uh, FDA is having a hard time catching up with all this, all the change. Yeah. <laughs> so the change is coming with or without the FDA. And so... Um, well, Who's when you, winning the antibiotics battle? I think the consumer. When you put your ear to the ground, uh, Dr. Glisson, um, what are your what is your, what are your peeps at the uh, National Chicken Council say? Um, are they like, okay, yeah, we got to go with this? I mean, uh, when uh, Purdue announced that they weren't going to inject their uh, hatchlings anymore with gentamicin, that was kind of like, wow, they broke ranks with the industry, and I suspect there were some pretty mad people. <laughs> in the trade organization but you know like i mean i i don't i see that consumers drive a certain amount of change but i also know that the export market is um also a very big part of the poultry industry in this country and um and so and you know that's that's another big consumer almost 20 percent of the chicken produced in this country is exported and in our in our export customers they have they have their needs and their wishes and their right. demands. And so, you know, product has to be targeted for that also. So, again, that's just another consumer. It's a really big one because it's about 20% of the market at times. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so you know, everything is in response to the market, and I think that's very healthy. Mm-hmm. That's why I say the consumer is the winner. Okay. Bob, What? who do you think is winning? Are we building two separate systems, or uh, do you see animal agriculture actually uh, caving slowly to public pressure. Well, I think that you know we're starting down the kind of the path to two separate systems, um, but I think that there at some point in the in the not too distant future we're going to hit a tipping point where uh, the there'll be more uh, production with um, you know antibiotics only used uh, to to treat sick animals and not this non therapeutic use. And so the capacity will build, and there'll be, um, you know, more uh, available. So the cost will come down. So I think eventually, um, driven by consumer demand, driven by large purchasers like Chipotle and uh, and Chick Fil A and Bon Appetit Management Company and right and the Urban and, School uh, Food Alliance, a lot of others. I, <laughs> yeah. I think that we're not at the tipping point yet, but I think we'll get there. And the other thing, the science gets clearer all the time. Um, yeah. You know, with uh, this genome sequencing uh, capability we've developed or that we're refining, um, it's there's really um, going to be more and more smoking guns emerge. And I think the doctor's right. I mean, the, the international export market's big, and I think that in, in some ways um, uh, a large part of the world is a little bit ahead of us on, on some of these issues. And some of the bigger markets in Asia are catching up with us, but uh, you know the UN has said this is like the number two, the number two public health threat um, in the world right now, 
which is antibiotic resistant bacteria. So um, I, I think that we've probably got two systems right now, but I think it'll eventually tip more to the uh, to the one that's trying to emerge right now. I mean, it's a little bit easier in, in poultry production because the life cycle of the bird is shorter. It's a little bit more difficult in in some of the other species because it takes longer sure. to uh, grow them, but everybody's going to switch eventually, I think. Okay. Well, we got to wrap not, it up I, there. And I'm not talking about no antibiotics ever. I'm just talking about sure. you treat sick animals with antibiotics, you, you abide by the withdrawal periods, but you stop this daily routine low-level use. Yes, right. And I think that's what consumers support. Nobody, you know, nobody's asking the industry to give up their use of antibiotics, period, end of story, and suffer catastrophic losses. It's just let's have a more responsible management program. Um, guys, I got to wrap it up here, but thank you both so, so much uh, for joining me today. I thought this was a great discussion. I really enjoyed it myself. Um, I hope you didn't feel like we beat up on you too much, Doc. Because you're a really good sport. You know, Katie, I have a thick skin. I don't get too excited. (laughs) Well, I look forward to meeting you sometime. And and remember to tell my friends. (laughs) I want to come back and tell them more about how they need to change up their protocols. I'm sure they're delighted to hear that. Um, But anyway, thanks so much to my sponsor, uh, Kane Winery. And thank you both, uh, Bob Martin from the Center for a Livable Future and uh, Dr. John Glisson from the National uh, Chicken Council. I appreciate your time today. And we'll see you next week. with another great show. You betcha. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 